there might be a trade here though. I mean, this is the first commercial landing on the moon. <laughs> That's obviously an unbelievable milestone. Are we surprised that retail investors are going nuts over it? No. <laughs> when you see a stock surge like this because of a deal that happened many years ago, I, I think you're right in the mix of a bubble for sure. Anyone who's training models in the next couple of years is going to pay a fraction of what the early entrants like OpenAI have paid. All right, welcome back, guys. It's episode 11. I don't know if you guys want to make a wish or something. If you wished for more pods, congratulations, your wish is coming true. We got Pete back today, no longer on vacation. Uh, trend, trend Tracker back in house. Uh, Pete, you did promise that you're going to pitch the podcast wherever you were. So I'm, I'm only hoping that you, you held up your end of the bargain there. <laughs> that wasn't just down there golfing and everything, okay? I was, where do you think these deals are done? You know, it's not on the pod. I got to get out there. I'm a mover and shaker. I was making it happen. And I was pitching. We're not talking about regular machine learning. Active infrared AI. You know, our pod, some of our favorite stocks, half of Declan's portfolio, talking to people about versus AI. But it's, uh, it's great to be back. All right. Well, we're going to take your word for it. And, and hey, actually, why don't you, you're coming in hot because last Last time you were here, episode nine, we were talking about Reddit and how valuable their data would be for a large language model. And boom, guess what just happened? Uh, earlier this week, they signed a $60 million annual agreement with an unknown, with a mystery large language model. But boom, how's that for a you know, direct feedback to what we're talking about? I, I think um, Declan might have to have a slice of humble pie on that one because I have been stressing the value of data and I liked the Reddit play and I liked it for data. And we even have a little short cutout of it, of me saying that the price of this data is about to go up. So before I go on a big rant on AI, I wouldn't mind hearing a little bit of Mr. Fundamentals feedback because I had to eat it on meta. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know what? I'm going to congratulate you on this one, Pete. I think it's uh you know, a clear tell of how valuable the data is and people are trying to build better and better large language models. And for that reason, this is a clear indication that Reddit is not to be taken for granted in this term because people are willing to pay. So I will eat that humble pie and I got to congratulate thank you, thank you for the you, early thank call. Thank you. <laughs> I'm sure I will have several slices of humble pie as this podcast goes on because Declan's uh, <laughs> fundamentals usually, usually is pretty solid. But I, I do want to talk a little bit about this because it's something I don't think I've chatted on the pod. And um, yeah, for, for those that don't know, my, I, I do own a digital advertising agency and I've been very, very close to what's happening in AI. And I could go down a huge rabbit hole to talk about all the endless possibilities. But what I really wanted to focus on is content because Google has been combating AI poor quality content. It's affecting a lot of my clients. And I started to think of what the future of content looked like. And I started thinking tiers. So much like how YouTube monetizes content. We're, we're on YouTube right now. We're on Spotify. We're on some other things. Um, they're able to do kind of partner sharing revenue. I saw that in the future of written content on blogs and websites. And, and I felt like you're going to have to pick a path because these, these tech companies don't play nice with each other, right? Microsoft and OpenAI do not want Google and Baird and Gemini to win, right? So I felt like when you're going to be opening up, if you're a major content site, you have a lot of publishing, 
they are scraping that. They are using this for their large language models, right? And that is going to stop because there's basically, I think uh, was the Times came out with one of the first lawsuits. This has been one of the biggest mm -hmm. copyright infringements of all time. So you're going to see people get compensated. And I felt it was going to be in some type of a rep share, whether it's opening up an API or something like that. And it's likely going to be having to say no to another one, right? They're not going to let you share, right, your data. And you kind of see this with this Reddit deal. You're seeing this right away. But the number of the Reddit deal is really interesting. So I kind of saw the future of content as a lower level AI generated, right? Then you're going to see some AI, but edited by you know, a, a human and who they are and that they have authority and trust in an area, like if you two were to write about finance. Um, and then last will be, you know, brand new human quality content. And that's kind of how I saw it go. And there's this for a lot of reasons. I think Declan, you kind of understand this really well, but you can't train, you know, these models by AI generated content, right? That's why there's a stop date. That's why they hallucinate. That's why they have all these problems, right? So they need new information and new content. But what I really didn't realize, and this one should have been obvious to me, and as much as I thought Reddit data was really valuable, it was the nonpartisan dialogue that I think is incredibly valuable that you're getting two sides of the coin and it's a forum and it's dialogue and it's one of the richest data sets out there of how humans talk to each other, not how you might just talk to an audience. So I wanted to get that out there. I thought it's super, super interesting. I won't go on it any further. Uh, we can talk about AI a little bit more in that world another time. So thanks for, for listening to that. Yeah, we could talk about this all day. I think the final point I'll give to Reddit there is, is well, maybe two things. So one, $60 million annual revenue for a company that does, what is that? I think it was 800 million, 800, six, seven, yeah. 800, 800 million. So, you know, it's, it's somewhat meaningful, but where I think it really is meaningful is on the margin. Cause this is a company that's really struggled to, hasn't really struggled to grow revenue. Revenue has been growing at a steady clip, but it's been really struggling to grow profitability. So something like selling your data, that's gotta be almost a hundred percent margin. So when you're right on the, precipice of an initial public offering to have this a deal like this that might have been the final thing that they needed to go public now that they can get to profitability or close um so i think that's that's meaningful so we could talk about that all day long but we have some really cool topics that i want to get into today mm -hmm. one of which walmart buying uh spending two billion dollars to buy a media company a mid-cap media company uh then we're going to go to space and actually right now i have a live stream going uh, for the for the IM1, uh, it's Intuitive Machines. They're landing a lunar. It's a lunar lander. Whoa, that's hard to say. Landing a lunar lander. Oh God, on the moon. Uh, that was actually supposed to land about 20 minutes ago. The they've decided to orbit the moon once more, try again. So I think the timer said another hour and a half left to landing. So we'll see how that goes. Stock's been going bonkers uh, leading up to this. Uh, finally, of course, don't worry, Pete, we are coming back to AI, <laughs> Soundhound AI. Um, they're basically looking to dominate the in-car assistant market. So that will be our third topic. If you guys are new, we do this every Thursday, release it every Sunday. Let's go straight into it. Topic one, Walmart buying Vizio, a mid-cap company you may or may not be familiar with. So a few notes, there, it's a $2.3 billion deal. They're going to focus on Vizio's SmartCast operating system. Uh, the purpose is they want to enhance their in-home entertainment and create advertising opportunities, essentially looking to diversify. 
Some articles say they're looking to take on Amazon. You know, I say good luck to you. Uh, a couple of key points. They're really looking to leverage this, this operating system uh, to build out their advertising opportunities. Number two, their customer-centric SmartCast OS. It's got over 18 million active accounts. It's no small user base. It's contributed significantly to its growth, particularly in the advertising business, which is now a major part of the company's gross profit. Um, talking about Vizio here, of course. The acquisition is expected to redefine the retail and entertainment intersection, creating a synergies between Walmart Connect and Vizio's advertising solutions. So to kick off the discussions, Declan, Mr. Fundamentals, I'm coming to you. How do you, how does this acquisition of Vizio align with Walmart's strategy for essentially enhancing its media business? And what potential benefits do you think Walmart would see in integrating Vizio's SmartCast OS for in-home advertising and entertainment? Yeah. So, I mean, first and foremost, if you've read the headlines, you're probably wondering why the heck Walmart would be buying a television manufacturing company. Um, you know, Vizio sits at a modest spot with in ninth place with about 3.1% market share. But like you said, it really comes down to the software that they've developed um, compared to the hardware and the, the TVs that they traditionally had built their business around. And so what it comes to when it comes to SmartCast operating system is, like you said, they've been able to build a meaningful network of about 18 million uh, subscribers. And between these people, they have spent about, I think it's 96 hours on average monthly viewing content. Now, the neat thing about Vizio is that for a lot of the content, they don't actually charge users for a subscription. Their model is primarily driven buy advertisements. And so what they'll do is they'll place different advertisements and sponsorships for shows. They also have their own select content and, and media channels where, again, they'll give advertisers opportunities to really showcase their, their brand and their products and the like. And what I think this does here for Walmart is it gives them unique insights into users that may view or seek out to purchase things from different channels. So of course, like like any online streaming platform, they're going to collect data on their users. But with this advertising model, they can really gain insights into what products, what brands people are most attracted to. And also directly tie that to, say, somebody who prefers to watch sports versus somebody who likes home hardware and various different cooking channels and the like. And so this really gives Walmart great insight into what consumers want to buy. And not only that, but they also get to integrate all those partnerships that exist with Vizio into their platform. So this just enhances it overall. It's I see some really strong synergies between this and it makes sense. I think it's, you know, this is goes to Pete's point. I think data is very, very valuable. And this is a clear indication that although Vizio is by no means the largest smart TV operating system, there is still tremendous value to be had and their partnerships really allow them to accelerate it. So I think Walmart's done a good job here and it makes sense to me why they would do such a business acquisition and where they're going ahead with this deal. So quite interesting. Yeah, um, absolutely. Declan, I completely agree with everything you just said. Uh, I love this deal for Walmart. Absolutely. I think it's a, it's a really, really smart play for them for all the reasons you just mentioned. I mean, they have a unique edge now. I mean, the hardware is the hardware. Um, no one's making money off, off TVs. They're giving them away for free, basically, to get the users and the data they can get from those users. But how it intertwines with Walmart is really interesting. And it's a bit of a competitive edge 
I think to Amazon, who doesn't have those retail locations, but has streaming. Um, and I wouldn't knock all the hardware guys. I didn't know this. They have a soundbar. People go wild for the soundbar. I think it's priced really well. Um, people are really looking for it. I checked out some of the trends. People like it. Uh, while um, the overall uh, revenue has dropped in the past few quarters, that was kind of in line with a lot of what happened over kind of the pandemic and people just at home doing retail therapy and spending money that they had been accumulating. Um, but when I look at their product mix and when I look at their future and what they wanted to do, these guys are on the right track. Vizio was, we're not talking about Roomba and iRobot here acquisition. This is what those guys should aspire to be when they were looking at how to kind of roll out this product mix. They're really on point. Uh, they're doing a, a lot of really, really great things. And, you know, this, they're, they're going to get paid for it in, in the sum of billions. I love the, the intertwining of media and commerce. And I'm really looking forward to when that becomes much more prevalent. So for example, I use a Chromecast now. I used to use an Apple TV. And as I flip through different apps and stuff, I can absolutely see how you could merge the two together. And and especially if you're, you're watching an ad, ad comes up for a set of pots and pans that you want to buy, being able to you know one-click buy it now from an ad while you're watching TV is pretty cool. And being able to tailor that to somebody just like, you know, watching the food channel and then hitting them with super targeted ads that lead you, of course, to Walmart. Yeah, it, it makes so much sense from an acquisition standpoint. What do you guys think um, in terms of regulatory risk? Uh, will this, you know, the, over the next 45 days, there's a break clause where if a better offer comes along for Vizio, they can actually terminate Walmart's deal and take the new offer. But I'm curious, I see that as less of a, less of a concern as what's going to happen with the regulators. I think my gut doesn't tell me this is a deal they're going to block. You know, it's not like Walmart buying another retailer. They're buying something to diversify the business essentially. But what do you guys think about regulatory risk on this acquisition? Yeah, I mean, when I looked at it, I, I think the big thing that I was trying to figure out was how many televisions Walmart actually sells and whether this would be integrated into all their uh, all the televisions that they do sell. I think from a, a positive standpoint or advantageous that this will likely go through is that Vizio is, it's well positioned in the smart operating space, but there are bigger players, like you said, uh, Google's Chromecast and, you know, Apple television, Samsung has one and LG. So, and even Roku as well. Um, so I think from that standpoint, you could argue, okay, well, it's a meaningful player, but it's by no means the biggest one. And so there has to be some reasonable assessment there. Same thing. I think there's enough like retailers distributing the actual hardware and making this accessible that it's not like Walmart alone is going to dominate this market. It may be interesting from a standpoint of like, okay, well, let, to your point about e-commerce and media, like, well, are you allowed to let a major retail major retailer have so much influence on you and the products you buy? So maybe from that end, um, I'm not too sure, but I think that's one thing that I'm definitely considering anyways when I evaluate it. But yeah, what do you think, Pete? I think it's low. I, I think this, um, they might get a better, they might get a better number because I think, um, you know, overall the, the valuation wasn't crazy. Um, seeing what they're able to do, seeing what they're able to do with data. And I think Walmart would be crazy not to match. And in terms of, yeah, competition, they, they sell these on Amazon. 
Um, Walmart's not the only distributor. Walmart has, you're allowed to have your own line of products as a retailer. Um, is Samsung going to be happy if they sell for them or some other, some other manufacturers? Probably not, but, um, you know, that that's the game you're playing with some of these big retailers. They're, they're not your friend, Walmart, Amazon, when you're selling to these companies, they're not your friend anyways, at the end of the day, you work with them because you can move a lot of product, but they're going to squeeze you for every dollar they have. And they're going to do things like this. Certainly. Well, when we're talking about Vizio, their advertising business, it's a big contributor to their gross profit. So with Walmart acquiring them, you know, Pete, I'm going to ask, uh, ask you a question, you know, with, with Walmart's plan to acquire them, how do you think they're going to capitalize on this specific aspect specifically to, I guess, empower brands and advertisers? Like what role will you know, Walmart connect play in this synergy? This is why I absolutely love this play. Walmart did a hundred billion dollars in e-commerce sales last year and grew wow. their advertising revenue by 28%. This is not a small number. This is not a small game. They also have a completely unique advantage over Amazon and other retailers because they have the ability to track online advertising to offline conversions. They can see if an ad was served to an online user and if someone went to a retail location and bought that guess what they're about to do is add one more piece of data to that mix you're going to be able to see if an ad was served to a tv viewer that actually bought something that and the fact that it's a huge competitive advantage to have self-service advertising that's why google is google and meta is meta and the legacy media companies are trying to buy them all up because they still have people calling them up and saying do you want to buy ads like rather than people just doing it yourself, which is what you can do with smart TV programming. So whoever at Walmart pushed this deal through, uh, good for you um, because the CEO took all your credit in his interview and um, whoever briefed him did a really good job for sure because this is definitely not his wheelhouse. And I'm sure an internal champion there did a really good job of getting this deal through on this acquisition. And uh, maybe uh, Roomba should give him a call. Because uh, this was this was this is a really good thing for Walmart, and I think you're going to see uh, it's a really good piece to their e-commerce puzzle. I believe it, and uh, you know, in terms of an acquisition price, like you said, Pete, doesn't seem to be too out to lunch. In in 2022, they finished the year with uh, just shy of two billion revenue, which was actually a little bit down year over year. That being said, it seems like they've they've right sized some operational costs, so they've actually swung from a net loss to a net profit. So, I mean, they're in a, in a fairly healthy spot. And I think just like you guys have been saying, an acquirer like Walmart is going to have so many more strategic reasons to be able to probably pay a slightly higher amount than a competitor if they need to. I don't see there being a big risk of them losing this deal, but hey, we'll see. Crazier things have happened. <laughs> no doubt. Who knew uh, Walmart was going to be the big tech play of 2024, eh? <laughs> no kidding. Not me. Not me. So whoever <laughs> is, I know someone's in there over at Walmart. You're killing it. Good job. <laughs> yeah, good job to you guys. I, I, you know, I don't know, actually, maybe one final thing. Do you, are you guys overly familiar with Walmart Connect, what that even is? I'm not even sure. I don't think no, we're just, I mean, yeah. It, yeah, I like when I looked into it, I, I think it's very business facing. So it's, it's not such a B2C kind of product or service offering. So um, that was basically my understanding anyways, is that it would really integrate and help its own advertisers and product manufacturers and the like really benefit from the data and insights. Okay. 
Well, let's move on to space here. I think that's a slightly more interesting topic. So final thought there with, you know, Walmart buying Vizio. If you're looking at the stock now, deciding if you want to buy it after the news, my personal opinion is I don't, I think you've kind of missed, missed your chance there. There's not much meat left on the bone. It's trading it over a, where is it? It's over a $2 billion market cap currently. So when you layer on any kind of risk with the acquisition, uh, especially, you know, if anything were to yeah, happen to it, I just don't think there's enough meat on the bone to worry about it right now. Um, but we'll see, but, but go Walmart. Let's talk about space intuitive machines. Uh, I actually have a live stream going on on my computer right now of the upcoming landing and lift off. But if you're not familiar intuitive machines, uh, it's I M one mission Nova C lunar lander. God, why do they make these names so complicated? But basically it successfully launched on SpaceX Falcon nine, uh, reached its intended orbit. Systems have been checking out. It's currently orbiting the moon. Like I said, doing one more pass before attempting a landing. And the stock's been just going absolutely bonkers leading up to this. Uh, so the mission itself marks there. I'm just going to call them IM. IM's first lunar landing attempt is part of NASA's Commercial Lunar Payload Services Initiative, contributing to human exploration efforts on the moon. Very exciting stuff. A few key points. The IM-1 mission launched by Intuitive Machines on SpaceX Falcon 9. It's Achieved a stable altitude, solar charging, and radio communication contact with the Mission Operations Center in Houston. All systems go, essentially. Um, they aim to softly return the United States to the moon after 52 years. It's a crucial part of NASA's Commercial Lunar Payload Services Initiative. Uh, point number three, the lunar mission signifies uh, IM's diverse space capabilities, of course focusing on space exploration and providing products and services for both robotic and human exploration to destinations such as the moon and Mars. Ugh, that was a lot of words. I hate those. Um, Peter, I'm going to come to you. Considering this lunar landing, it's part of NASA's commercial payload services. How does IM's involvement in this program contribute to the broader goals of lunar exploration and NASA's Artemis program? Yeah, I think from a business standpoint, this is absolutely great for this company because, I mean, NASA had originally invested $25 billion in the Apollo program to send a total of 12 people to the moon, which is about $150 billion in today's terms. And at its peak, it was 4.4% of the federal budget. Now that's kind of fallen down to under about half a percent of the federal budget. But it's still a $20 billion budget overall that NASA has that is now largely a, a subcontracting company. I think that's what we've seen, and probably for good reason. I think uh, the space program is probably one of the best examples of why you might shift things from uh, government to the private markets, because we have certainly found a way to do things cheaper now than they used to. So I think it's, it's, it's really great to see. Um, speaking of all those dollars that were spent, this company's not running a huge loss when it comes to space. I mean, their last quarter was not bad, and I think they have uh, 136 million in the pipeline. So this this potentially has a, a pretty bright future. And I mean, uh, pun intended. Thanks for putting this on my radar. Uh, I think I when when this kind of came across our, our Slack channel, things to chat about. Um, I felt like Lloyd Christmas and Dumb and Dumber walking by and being like, "We landed on the moon." So, like, I had no idea <laughs> that this was kind of uh, this close. Um, so it was really interesting to see. Like you, I put on the live stream today, and I was like, "Oh, oh man, this you know might be able to see something like this." But uh, overall, it's it's very. It, I think it's really great for them. 
um, I think it's something I need to research more in terms of the total commercialization of what the moon's value might be outside of NASA just kind of giving you money because that's there for sure. So that they have that. I think when, you know, maybe what the commercial terms look like between NASA and them would be, I think, interesting to do a little bit more investigating and what the total value is. But they're running fairly lean in terms of space companies and their uh, their future products are pretty cool, too. I mean, they have um, three other interesting things that have other contractors, whether from the Air Force um, and, and other areas where they can bring in some revenue. So, you know, if they can kind of keep running like this, the, the future might be bright. Um, obviously, this is Thursday. They haven't landed yet. There could be some major implications on the stock should there be any issues with the actual land, for sure. Declan, I have something tells me that you're going to beat this one up. <laughs> so before anything happens, I want to just respond to something Pete said there. So their commercial contract value with NASA is somewhere about $300 million. I think it's maybe just shy. Something interesting to note, though, of their first three missions with NASA, those successful, they actually lost money on each one. So... NASA and the taxpayers should be grateful <laughs> because their space uh, initiatives are being essentially subsidized by private corporations. Um, but it's interesting to see as of now, they've shown success in many respects outside of uh, business operations. So with that said, Declan, uh, I'm sure you've got lots of more thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I mean, like, you know, to start, I think I, I long held the belief that space privatization was going to be reserved for the big dogs, you know, whether that was Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos. And it really came down to a cap, big capital spend. Um, I still think that is true when it comes to, you know, overall, a lot of it is going to be these high cost projects that pan out. But that being said, you know, space exploration and space development and even the space economy has come a really long way in a very short period of time. You know, with SpaceX success, just building the Falcon 9 rocket and all of the satellites that have been injected into the, you know, our stratosphere over the past little while, um, it, it really speaks to how much investment has gone towards it and how people do believe that this is a fundamentally important part of developing our civilization on Earth and being able to really like, go beyond what was the possibility for a very long time. So I think there's a lot of like tremendous benefit that comes through space exploration and being able to do these awesome projects. I mean, like who would have thought that, you know, 10 years ago, a $300 million company was going to be able to bring our first lunar lander back to the moon and be able to kind of set that new foundation for both the moon exploration, but um, really developing that space economy. So um, I, I think the uh, the inner, you know, space exploration enthusiast in me kind of surpasses perhaps the uh, the fundament or grounded fundamentals in that regard. But I think I think you know, in terms of like intuitive machine, if all goes well here, and we'll find out shortly if their lunar lander does land or you know finally surface on the moon. I think this is just the beginning of a very fruitful journey with NASA and potentially other candidates that really pursue this next phase. So I, I'm excited overall. I, you know, I, it's okay. tough to hate on a company when they're doing something awesome like this. And I can't wait to find out what data and information they find that 
you know, we've been, you know, just piquing our interest for the past 50 years or whatever. Well, that was an unexpected answer. Yeah, I'm not the only one that just got excited about going to the moon because, uh, (laughs) I mean, memes aside, uh, if the stock goes well, uh, yeah, usually I would say this was not an industry I, I loved because there's really historically nothing been more capital intensive for us to do. And it's incredibly hard to figure out. So initially, it would be something I would have kind of scoffed at from an investment standpoint. I still think it's super risky. But at the end of the day, it's it's an interesting play. It's interesting. And yeah, Declan, I'm, I'm still kind of uh, surprised by your words there. And, and you're right. You know, when a company is doing something truly incredible and, and advancing society, it's, it is hard to beat them up. I just yeah. wonder, what's the business point? What's the business look like here when they clearly have good standing with NASA? You know, on their latest contract for $118 million, they've hit 90% of the milestones to unlock payment, essentially. So it's a company that seems to be able to execute. <laughs> We're really going to see in about an hour and a half. Um, but it seems to be a company that can execute. It's a company that has, you know, clear technological advantage in certain areas to win the respect and the trust of NASA. But it's, it's you know, how long can you run a business where your cost of delivering revenue is higher than the revenue itself? Um, and this is a company that's, it's not super, super cashed up. You know, it, it's not a company with enormous runway to just keep trying and trying and trying. They're kind of at a point where, you know, they're, they're running low on, on fuel. <laughs> there you go. How's that for a space pun? Um, it's a company that you want to love though. So, you know, it's tough. I'd say from an investment standpoint, I struggle with this. You know, there's companies we've looked at rocket lab being an example, um, you know, private company, Phantom Aerospace, Pete, you're an investor in that too. There's companies I just like more currently, but this is a company I want to love. So I will be watching very closely on this moon landing. But here's the other thing. You know, if you look at, do a little bit of analysis on the stock, people are estimating 80% plus of the trading activities, retail investors. And if you spend 10 minutes on any forum, take your pick, look at the comments and right away, it's just going to make you scared of what could happen and who, are, who is powering this Pick rally. Your Take, your and right now, Take your gains. Take your gains. You've got an hour and 15 yeah. minutes to... <laughs> Actually, yeah. the market's closed. So you're... Yeah. Let's see what happens. Tomorrow's your day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, and, and to that point, like, I think it's... Um, you know, what's... The, the question now is going to be what's next? Because this is kind of their big moment, you know, they're getting all this coverage, they're getting all this attention, and there's a lot of focus on the business itself. But that, to your point, Kev, like it's going to be interesting if they have to almost continue to one-up each other with every new project that they commence with NASA. Now, I'm sure there's going to be recurring projects or ways that they can kind of stabilize revenues over its lifetime. But the thing is, like, they're always going to bring that or need to bring that next level of innovation for people to stay interested from that regard. And, you know, ultimately, like if they, if they struggle to be profitable in the long run, then it, from an investment standpoint, it's, it's really like more of a speculative play than something that you're looking to invest in and know that you're going to have consistent returns that other competitors and players aren't going to come into the market and separate themselves that way. So I think it's one of those things that you just have to like, as exciting as these things can be, you have to take a rational approach when you're analyzing a business and say like, well, what are the risks that are going to affect this business over the long run? And I, or on top of that, 
if you don't know any of the risks or you can't pinpoint anything, that that in itself should kind of be a warning sign that maybe you need to understand this market better, potentially the business. And the thing is, the space industry is so young and so new that a lot of the risks that kind of manifest in other markets have yet to be really determined. So you're kind of left guessing and hoping that all goes well and they continue doing well. Um, but it's still an exciting business. Like, hell yeah to landing back on the moon and figuring these things out and seeing where it goes. So, well, Declan, maybe I'm just going to keep it with you for a second. So, you know, as I am provides updates on this mission, what milestones or data points should investors pay attention to if they want to assess, you know, essentially the success or I guess the impact of this lunar landing attempt? Yeah, well, I, I think the big thing here is that a lot of the risk is upfront. And we've kind of gotten over most of the major hurdles. The last one here is really landing on the moon. Um, actually, their website does a really good job. They provide like a PDF on there that provides a full explanation of every single step in the process that got led up to this point and ultimately what they're trying to explore. They give a full like insight into the technology and scientific devices that essentially NASA has built or integrated into Odysseus. I think I'm botching that name, but um, they they essentially have it all there. So it gives you really good insights into what they're actually looking for, what they're trying to understand. And I think the big thing here is now as you follow this and you continue to get updates, well, it's like you want to realize if, say, how it closely ties to the Artemis program itself and are there goals and ambitions of, you know, creating lunar bases and being able to create an actual sustainable um, process for going to the moon over and over again come to fruition. So I think that's the thing here is paying attention and just keeping track with the Artemis milestones because ultimately like for intuitive machines, the hard part is done. They, they're, well, I should say almost done. Um, but as soon as they land that lander, a lot of their work in terms of getting things there uh, is complete. And so now you can kind of just reap the benefits and the rewards and all the insights and data that they gather from this project. Well, this is one for the watch list. Personally, I wouldn't buy it at this point, especially not after a to the moon kind of rally, as we just saw <laughs> driven by retail, uh, FOMO, YOLO investors. Uh, <laughs> there might be a trade here though. I mean, this is the first commercial landing on the moon. <laughs> That's obviously an unbelievable milestone. Um, are we surprised that retail investors are going nuts over it? No, <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, really curious to see, you know, if, if I were to trade this, I see this as being a stock that's going to overshoot on the upside, which I think it is right now. But mm -hmm. I think it's a stock that could also do the opposite um, in reverse. So if you see any negative news today, it wouldn't surprise me in the least to see this thing um, fall perhaps further than it should, possibly opening up a trade. But I mean, long term, one final thing for the fundamentals, you know, the total liabilities, I'm looking at 2022, by the way, I'm still waiting for annual 23 results. But the total liabilities in 2022 are double the total assets. So it's not like a financially healthy business. And I without further, you know, analysis, which I, I should do, without further knowledge, though, I can only assume it's probably gotten worse. I don't know, though. So that's my final thought. I mean, Pete, from a trend point of view, what are you looking at this thing at all? I'm, I'm definitely with you on this. 80% of retail investors makes me run really fast away, um, <laughs> which means that there's it's going to peak at a certain point. People are going to pull out and the other shoe's going to fall. But there's going to be a dip. 
And I think that's where you can tie in some of the things you just said, that this might be an interesting thing to buy the dip. It, it is likely going to fall um, and then become kind of undervalued until Declan said maybe there's another one-upper that gets people there. Or fundamentally, they find a way to execute on this pipeline and the commercialization of the moon. At that point, I, I don't know. I think I'm going to investigate a little bit more on the IP side of things. If those assets are undervalued, how can you necessarily value some of those assets? Sure, maybe it's what they spent on them and they're depreciating at whatever the IRS says they have to. But is that true for a lunar mm -hmm. vehicle? The same as it is for a car. Uh, I'm, I'm sure the IRS is a little bit behind on, on the way they do some of that accounting. So definitely interesting. I think uh, the trend of, of space is still very, very new. How we kind of assess these companies, I don't know how many comparables there are. So waiting on that sense, but is there a, a, a swing here and buy the dip? I like it. We're not talking about bowling alleys anymore, boys. <laughs> <laughs> the moon. Well, hey, I know Pete's just itching to talk about AI, so why don't I humor you a little bit? Let's talk about our third topic today, SoundHound AI. They got a voice assistant called Iris uh, that integrates ChatGPT. Of course, it's entered full production with Stellantis DS automobiles uh, after a successful pilot, which demonstrated over a 50% increase in user engagement, essentially meaning people have this in their cars. They use it a lot, <laughs> uh, which makes sense. So a few key points. So Iris, it's the first generative AI-enabled in-vehicle voice assistant. So it's set to be available in Stellantis DS automobiles, which marks a pretty big milestone in a seamless integration with ChatGPT uh, for an enhanced in-car voice experience. Fair enough. Point number two, DS automobiles, they reported... Um, that it was over a 50% surge in user engagement following uh, basically piloting using their new SoundHound AI voice assistant. Number three, SoundHound's proprietary approach, it significantly minimizes the risk of AI hallucinations. That's a big one. <laughs> so it's going to offer a reliable and predictable voice assistant experience that's going to address concerns uh, associated with a lot of LLMs. And who better to talk to us about this than Pete? So let's talk about AI hallucinations. Pete, what ways could the reduction in hallucinations influence consumer trust and adoption of voice assistant technologies in vehicles? I think when you're driving uh, 60 miles an hour, 100 kilometers down the freeway, the last thing you can have is an AI hallucination. So these guys really claim that they have the least amount of hallucinations in voice. They better be right because that is not something anyone wants to see. This is something you have to trust fully. And I don't necessarily know how they can really say that so confidently. Um, that's just something that's a little bit beyond their control that they would have to kind of change retroactively. So I think it's vital for their success that this does not have the hallucinations. And if people don't kind of know what that term is that's listening, that is kind of what it sounds like. And machine learning and it has a tendency to make things up when it doesn't know the answer, unless you outrightly tell it not to. Similarly, sometimes to humans, if you say, oh, give me a comment on what you think about this, they'll tell you with the best expertise they have, even if it's completely wrong, unless you prompt them the right way to say, do not lie. <laughs> so that would kind of have to be the same thing. So I think it's really vital. I just don't know how they plan to execute it. I, I, took a, I did look at, you know, uh, their tech that they say is very proprietary to them and that's something that they've been working on since they were college students and they had this vision. The CEO is incredibly well-spoken. Um, you know, their plans to go after a $160 billion addressable market. Um, I think 
3.7 million they just got from NVIDIA would power chat GPT and open AI for about four or five days. So it's not really substantial. Um, how they get market share versus some of the other players is really beyond me other than the fact that they, the experience is that good and it's that specialized for vehicles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I th- actually on that note, Pete, so I, I was doing a little digging and interesting enough, NVIDIA didn't actually invest in them recently, but they invested in them in what is like believed to be around 2017. So oh, what actually now. happened here? Okay. Yeah, it's because so they took a I think it's a hundred million dollar position in ARM, and because okay. they have over a hundred million in public equities, they now have to disclose it in a 13F filing. And so it came to light that their position actually was probably a bit bigger in Soundhound, but because of the stock depreciation, it's ended up looking like a three million dollar investment, right? The irony of it all, and I think this just like ties in, I think, you know, SoundHound, they have some interesting tech and we'll probably like dive into it deeper. But I think what this reflects more than anything is just the speculative nature of AI right now. Obviously, anything associated with NVIDIA right now is just going to benefit tremendously from the exposure and that knowledge base. And that's kind of what happened here is you know, the stock shut up 80% after it came to light that NVIDIA had supposedly invested in them. But, you know, if it's true that this investment was a lot long ago, then this really has no direct benefit to the company Mm -hmm. whatsoever. But again, right now we're in a, we're in a point in time where between NVIDIA and super microcomputer, there is just so much fervor and belief that AI is going to transform everything and it is true like there's a lot of value but you just have to like stay really grounded in this assessment because like does nvidia deserve to be a two trillion dollar company tough to tell like they're gonna need to continue to pump out chips and allow their customers to buy these chips not only that but microsoft just came out that they're trying to develop their own gpus essentially google has their tpus so there's a they no longer want to be bound by the quality and, you know, the success of NVIDIA, let's say. But I think, again, just bringing it back to SoundHound AI here, it's it's not like they really like did something extraordinary per se, or even deserved like a current belief from NVIDIA. This is more just a mere like assessment of, again, perhaps like investors lacking due diligence and not really trying to trying to make sense of the picture where this fits is it sustainable how do they differentiate themselves these are all questions that remain and it's more just a bank on okay well it's an ai company they're using generative ai well it sounds like everybody's using generative ai right now so what does that actually mean how are you going to make money from somebody else well you're going to have to prove it and hopefully you're right because if not and you overpaid for a company like that stock's probably going to come crashing down when it takes a wrong turn. So um, just to, anyways, I wanted to bring up that point because I, I had come across like the fact that NVIDIA's investment was supposedly not that recent. So I think it's important that investors are aware that it's not like NVIDIA just built a position and was like, hell yeah, sound down AI. They've kind of had a stake for a while now. That's yeah, a good and, catch. That's a very yeah. good catch. I hadn't even and, noticed uh, that. And podcasters apparently need to be a little <laughs> bit more... Uh, you know, I think we may have all read the headlines a little bit wrong yeah. and then dove, dove right into the company itself. 
but uh, great catch, Declan. And, and you're absolutely right. I think on, on everything you just said, I think they are a benefit to this hype train because when I look at them, I'm like, how, how, how are you going to take market share away? You know, people that are, especially if you're relying on a machine learning model um, to kind of educate, you know, generative AI, other people might be doing a better job. Everyone but Apple is doing a better job and they missed the boat on voice and they should have been ahead of everyone. And it was really, I don't know if you guys are aware, it was, it was by choice. It was by choice that the Siri you essentially take out of the box today has just really not changed much from when it was launched. And I think the iPhone 4 due to their kind of internal ethics and privacy that every time you talk to Siri, it's like the first time you ever talk to Siri. It doesn't remember anything you say. It doesn't try to get better. Uh, how I talk to Siri is the same way. Declan does the same way that Kev does. In this case, in SoundHound, very quickly, that would not be the case. It would very much learn how you talk. Again, with voice, I've been waiting for it for almost 10 years, it feels like, for it to really take off. I have voice in my car. Um, what do I do? I ask it to call someone once in a while, and then I'll use it when um, my screen won't let me type in a direction. So, I'm glad you brought up <laughs> Apple because that's the big question. When you're seeing all these massive large language model moves, where's Apple been in all of this? <clears throat> like you said, with Siri, they were so ahead of the game. <clears throat> and now Siri's like, I shouldn't call it a useless product, but compared to what's out there, it feels pretty useless. It's slow, doesn't understand you, doesn't have any context um, to the point where I, do, I don't even use it anymore and I used to use it religiously. So does that mean Apple is not gonna come hot into the AI space? Absolutely not. I'm sure they're just working up an absolute heater. What gets me excited and what I think could be relevant for SoundHound is Apple's ability, as you know, is to put things on board the hardware because they do the hardware mm -hmm. and the software. So they'll be able to have essentially an AI assistant that lives inside of the hardware rather than relying on connecting to the internet and having that latency, you know, albeit small, um, for the more computational heavy tasks, that latency could be big enough that, you know, the difference between a search result over one or two milliseconds is enough to switch your, your habits between, I don't know, Bing or Google or, or whatever. So I'd say Apple will come in hot with something and their data, good point, Pete, are they willing to use it or not is, is a whole other question, I suppose. But I would wonder if having it all housed on board would maybe mitigate some of the concerns with privacy, I guess we'll see. But for something like a, you know, Apple's, what it's called, Car OS or... I forget it's their, their CarPlay. Car, Car Car yeah. So, yeah, so, so that must be, that's going to probably be a pretty serious competitor to this because right now it sounds like SoundHounds, their, their key proprietary kind of innovation here is the ability to like a typical model or will a typical speech recognition software will listen to you speak. It'll transcribe it into text. Then it would feed it through a, a, a AI model to make sense of it. Whereas it sounds like they're, technology allows the the transcription to text and the understanding of what that is to happen at the same time, creating a much quicker, converse, more conversational back and forth with the AI, which actually, to be fair, is a pretty big advantage, <laughs> especially in the heat of the moment. I can think of using Siri when it's too slow or it gives me the wrong answer. I, you know, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm short-tempered, but the, the amount of times that I've just angrily given up because it's been too slow. 
I think that is a key advantage, but I think that's going to be a fairly short-lived advantage as soon as somebody like Apple, with that real focus on onboard, you know, software, hardware integration, could could probably come in hot. I mean, we'll see. It just doesn't feel like enough of a differentiator to really have a moat. But I could I could be for their sake. I hope I'm wrong. Yeah. I mean, in terms of Apple, though, they have not hinted at anything of the sort. I think in terms of data privacy and because of their own ethics and their own kind of corporate governance, basically gave a million a trillion dollars of market cap to other companies because they could have been here and they do not want to do that. And they've shown time and time again that they don't want to be as much in the data business. You've seen this, I think, with court cases in in uh, up going up against states of not giving police officers um, passwords to phones or letting them right. in phones. Uh, you've seen these things. You've seen it, like I just said, with Siri, they decided not to do it. You saw this with uh, the data sharing with Meta and turning that off um, from, and uh, as someone who works in, in advertising, how much that hurt Instagram ads and the results of Facebook ads that they've taken a long time now. They're just kind of getting their feet under them again. Um, I can give you a very real world example. If we run an install campaign, we will see the cost of install on an Android device with the ability to use like Google's network of data at one sixth or one seventh of the price of the same campaign on an Apple device. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Easy. Well, I just, uh, you know, it's funny. We kind of took this twist, but um, for anyone that's curious, I actually just read this book called after Steve that really goes into um, Apple nowadays under Tim Cook, as well as kind of the end of Johnny Ive, who is their main product designer. Um, but I think what it, it's almost like a double-edged sword because on one end, I think my big interpretation from that book is Apple has become a lot more bureaucratic than it once was. It's not willing to necessarily take as many risks. And Tim Cook is really focused on creating a strong image behind the brand, as well as I think kind of propping up his own legacy as the one who took over Steve Jobs' role and brought the company to a $3 trillion valuation. Now, for that reason, because it is bureaucratic, it moves a lot slower. And to your point about Siri, I think what happened was there was a lot of disagreements internally about where they wanted to go with the AI infrastructure. And so because it's moved slow and metastasized that way, it hasn't really like built a very uh, prominent or it, it didn't come to fruition what it should be. On the other hand, what I think is almost beneficial to Apple in this regard is, again, this goes back to the whole speculative mania behind this. Right now, everybody, literally everybody is obsessed with generative AI. I think MetaPay bought 340,000 NVIDIA GPUs, and that's fantastic. They're going to build a larger language model than pretty much any other business will be able to reach. You know, Obviously, like Google, OpenAI may be able to get their Microsoft, those kind of players. But the thing is here is everybody's acting really, really fast. And I'm not going to try and like sound like a broken record, but I just want you to, or listeners to kind of think about like, okay, well, what if there is a different approach to AI? What if it, the ticket isn't using a bunch of GPUs, using a large language model and just scaling entire or as big as you can to create as sophisticated AI as you can? What if you can use a lot less computational power and do things in a different way that it just doesn't require the same infrastructure that is really fueling this growth right now? And I think that's something that in, let's say, uh, Apple's case here is because they're moving slow, maybe they're not pushing AI as, as big as everyone else. 
they may benefit from not over-investing in something when they realize that a new infrastructure comes to light that is a lot more efficient and effective. And I think that, again, whenever it comes to an AI company right now, you really have to like take a step back and just like analyze, like, is this operationally efficient? Are the CEO and management team over-communicating the use of AI? And is it the fundamental driver of value within the business? Or is it a supplementary thing that you're now making the fundamental part of your business? And those are things that are really important to differentiate right now because, Again, if the economy slows down, if a new infrastructure comes to light, if some geopolitical event happens and things start to pull back, it's really going to compress the valuation of some of these businesses that have benefited from just preaching AI this whole time. And when that happens, like you better hope that you've paid a good price for it because it's it's going to turn out to be a god-awful investment if you overpaid for something. Well, good good point about making the distinction about is AI a fundamental part of your business or are you more leaning into a buzzword? Then, you know, Expedia, mm-hmm. their new app integrates ChatGPT. So you can text a little concierge that'll book flights and things like that. Is Expedia now an AI business? Well, no, it's not. It's still the same travel business it was before, but it's now enabled by AI. So the number of companies that will throw AI onto their business in the same way that companies threw blockchain onto their business to capitalize on investor sentiment, I think that we're going to start to see the dust settle around who is a real AI company. You know, SoundHound, Mm -hmm. it's integrated with ChatGPT. Okay, well, it's not even their core technology, right? It's how how much of the proprietary aspect of this goes towards ChatGPT versus SoundHound AI, that, that remains to be seen. But one thing that is clear is we're talking about a company that <laughs> just surged over 60% on reports of NVIDIA investing, which was apparently years ago. <laughs> uh, that's going to be a cold glass of water for investors when they find that out. Uh, <laughs> second of all, you know, looking at 2022 revenue, it's not a it's not a big revenue company. It's like a thirty million dollar a year revenue business when we're talking about a billion dollar uh, valuation. So if anything, I feel like the proprietary nature of this possibly isn't high enough. Uh, probably isn't strong enough. Sorry, the valuation appears to be just out to lunch, and we just had a massive catalyst that I think is going to come out to be nowhere near what investors thought it was um, with in regards to NVIDIA. So I see this is something that would I open up a short position today? Not necessarily, but would this be something that I'd be possibly looking to make a spread trade on and short this and go long something that I feel is more appropriately geared towards AI? Maybe. And then the other thing, you know, you commenting on um, different uh, entire approaches to AI. I think we're talking about versus here, active inference, mm-hmm. the ability to learn in real time, you know, I think there's two big killers for AI right now. Um, and then we'll bring it back to Apple and why their slow approach might make sense. Well, number one, like you said, there could be a completely fundamental fundamental change in AI that doesn't actually require these massive amounts of compute and massive amounts of data. That could be a killer. But the second killer is anyone who's training models in the next couple of years is going to pay a fraction of what the early entrants like OpenAI have paid. What used to cost maybe 100 million might cost $10 million or even $1 million to train in the future. So just by biding a little bit of time, you know, Apple is going to lose the first mover advantage, but gain a massive cost advantage. And since when has Apple ever cared about first mover advantage, right? They're almost second or third to market for everything. And they almost come out on top every single time, if not every single time. I'm not actually sure what the numbers are now. So 
so many interesting points um, to look at with this that I I'm far more nervous than I am excited about this company. <laughs> I don't know if you guys, Pete, did you have any final thoughts on, on this? Oh, on this, I'm with you. I think the people that probably benefited the most or whoever executives or senior people there happen to have some options. I'm <laughs> looking forward to seeing uh, the monthly uh, SEC filings of who kind of executed some options on this one because they probably woke up and said, whoa, okay, <laughs> these are in the money. So they'll probably do well. Uh, and Declan's right overall. I think we're, we, we're entering bubble territory for sure. And that's not because AI isn't a game changer. Um, in the CEO interview on SoundHound, he said, you know, he says people are calling it a bubble. He's like, AI is like the internet. And he's like, AI is bigger than the internet. I completely agree with him. But how do you kind of, you know, make sure you, you know who, who the right players are in this space? And there's a lot of people, like Declan said, that are obsessing over generative AI. It has its limitations for sure. Um, I think it's a complete game changer. I think we're only scratching the surface. I think it's going to evolve way faster than people think and pay for. But at the same time, there's you know uh, a bunch of fakes in the mix too that you kind of have to keep an eye out because there, there is some bubble territory here happening for sure. When you see a stock surge like this because of a deal that happened many years ago, I, I think you're right in the mix of a bubble for sure. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think that's yeah. fair. Well, and, and and two things on it, so. First, I don't want to discredit SoundHound for some of the value that they create because another facet that isn't really discussed in the news report about driving, um, but a big part of their business is they can essentially replace any customer service phone operation kind of thing where basically they just replace it with the AI and it's able to be even used at say fast food drive-throughs and take the orders and then make it available for the cooks and everyone else to use that information and deliver whatever requests that customer has made. And I think that can really benefit and extend across all facets wherever really anyone is answering a phone call and trying to help resolve an issue or provide more information or the like. And that's, you know, to that point, that's even where generative AI has a place. Like, it's not like you necessarily need this end all be all type of AI that really can do everything. Like there's a lot of functions that are quite useful and beneficial. And, um, you know, even SoundHound, like on their YouTube, they have a lot of good demonstrations of how this product can be useful. I just think that it's really important that if you tout generative AI, like you understand the reality of what the system can do and, and again, you know, going back to our discussion about hallucinations, like that's obviously one big point, but they also don't learn in real time. And, um, you know, even SoundHound actually acknowledges or kind of professes that their AI is interconnected. And so it can answer more information and provide more insights than other generative AI models because it's not isolated to one domain. I think there's one good example of this that you could start to realize how limited that is. And that's just like, first and foremost, that AI that can interconnect and interoperate with one another is constrained by any AI within SoundHound's ecosystem. And so let's, like, let's say you're running home uh, from work, you're stuck in traffic and you're expecting guests in an hour. Well, 
this SoundHound AI, while you're driving home and you're speaking to it, it's going to be able to direct you to the closest grocery store. It may give you insights on what you could cook in that time frame. It could um, potentially give you updates on all your favorite sports teams and the scores of those games today. But what it's not going to be able to do and what I think people perceive what AI should be able to do is ultimately be like, okay, well, hey, AI um, or Iris in this case, I'm running late. I have guests coming. The food isn't ready. So I need you to turn on my oven, turn on the AC. It's hot as heck out there and switch on the Roomba so that my floors start getting clean. Like that AI is not going to be able to interconnect and interoperate with other AI systems outside of its ecosystem. And these are just where the limitations of generative AI, It, I believe it's a novelty, but it's not going to be the key differentiator for SoundHound AI or really most businesses in general. You know, again, maybe you're NVIDIA, you're a semiconductor maker, and you're going to really benefit from this boom because, again, GPUs are a tremendously valuable asset to have, and people find a lot of new capabilities with them. But at the same time, those that are building the software on top of the software are really just, you know, they may add some value, but it's not going to be the thing that sets them apart. So I think it's just important to keep that in mind because there's a lot of fervor right now. And it, again, if things go wrong, it's going to go wrong in a serious way. And you just want to be in a good position where you've protected your downside well enough. Mm-hmm. Well, good points, gents. This was a big uh, episode. Um... Lots more to come. We've got other announcements coming up too. And uh, one thing I forgot to mention at the beginning of the pod, if anybody's watching right now, we're going to be launching a membership community shortly. I'll do a proper intro and explanation next podcast where it deserves. Uh, but if you've made it this far, I've at least got to tell you it's coming because you're clearly a, a loyal fan and we appreciate it. So this is Mr. Fundamentals, Tread Tracker and Small Cap Kev, Beyond the Edge, episode number 11. We're signing out. <laughs>